Thanks so much for listening in to the Saints Hill Church Podcast. Our vision is to see heaven come to earth, and we do this by equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, to walk in freedom through the truth, and make disciples who change the world. We hope this message draws you further into relationship with our Father, and if you would like to give to the mission of Saints Hill, please visit our website at saintshill.church. And thank you. Your generosity helps to keep Saints Hill going. Now, on to the message. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. That's where we're going to be tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We are in a series uh, that's going to be this entire month on relationships and sexuality. And uh, how many of you were here last week? Just by a woo. Woo! Uh, Awesome. If you weren't here last week, go back and listen. Uh, The series is in some ways building on itself Um, But we're going to be looking at relationships and sexuality. Oh, that was perfect timing. Thank you very much, Mike. That was awesome. Thank you. This last week, guys, I had a sore throat. I thought it was strep throat, so I went to go get it checked out. It wasn't strep throat. But I had, like, white things all down my throat. So last week... I was in pain the entire time I was up here. Uh, so, but this week, I'm totally fine. I got, I got my water. I'm, I'm totally good. So this will hopefully be even better than last week. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, this series really has two aims to it, and that's the aim of design and the aim of hermeneutics. How were humans designed to function? That's what we're going to be talking about throughout this entire series. What is your design? Uh, are you your designer, or do you have a designer? And what could it mean for the idea of bodily authority that there is a designer? Who's the author over your body? And also, this this series is going to talk about your hermeneutic. What is your hermeneutic? Or in kind of non-theological speak, how will you interact with the Bible in this life? What role will the Bible play in your life? Is it only devotional? Is it a place of, of deep academic study? How are you going to relate with the Bible? You know, you may say, and I hear this all the time in evangelical circles, the Bible is authoritative, but what does that mean? What does that practically mean? Now, for tonight, the message is titled Christians and Sex. And suddenly, I have the most awake crowd I will ever preach to. (laughs) This is pretty fun. This is going to be very fun. Okay, look down at your Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. Uh, This is Paul in dialogue with the Corinthian church. Quote, I have the right to do anything, end quote, you say, but not everything is beneficial. Quote, I have the right to do anything, end quote, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, quote, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both, end quote. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Verse 14, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with the prostitute is one with her in body? 
For it is said, the two, and this is a quote from Genesis, the two will become one flesh. Verse 17, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. The year was 2000. I was 10 years old. It was a good year. I was wearing InSync t-shirts and skateboarding in my cul-de-sac. And I was over at my friend's house, and we were building skateboard ramps. That was our kind of aim. We did this all the time, and he lived in a new development, so there were all these homes that were being built and pieces of wood lying around, and uh, we were building, you know, ramps that had nails sticking up out of them and all sorts of good stuff like that. And uh, so anyways, we're at this one building site, and we began looking around the building site for ramp material, and there, in the dirt, was a magazine. And right in front of me, in my 10-year-old eyes, there was a naked woman. I'd never seen a woman naked before. I'd always imagined, what is under all those clothes that they wear? And there before me was the most amazing sight I'd ever seen. I remember I, my friend and I were both just like, what is that? And we picked it up, and instantly I had this feeling in my heart that I was, my life would never be the same, one, and two, I was doing something deeply wrong by looking at it. That's the first encounter I ever had with pornography. Completely awakened. Now, a couple years go by, and a friend of mine um, comes over to my house, we lived in the same cul-de-sac together, and he said, there's this thing called Google, and you can look for anything on Google. If you go to Google Images, you can type in, and he had the name of this actress that both him and I liked. She was like in a kid's movie, essentially. He's like, she's been naked before. I'm like, what? And we looked up this picture of this naked woman. Uh, fast forward a few years. I'm 13 years old, and I had a little radio in my room. And I would listen to um, 94.7 NRK. Does anybody, re anybody remember that? I know, Jake, you would remember that. Very, okay, Steve over there. Um, it was an, it was, I don't even know if it still is a radio station or it certainly has changed or whatever, but um, they had this show on late at night called Loveline. And I remember being 13 years old, listening to people call, it was like basically Dave Ramsey for sex. And... People would like call in and be like, I'm having this issue, you know. I'm, did I mention, by the way, if any of you have young kids that you don't want to talk about sex, they should not be in this, in this gathering right now. Okay, just a heads up, we're going to talk about sex. So people would call in and they would, and they would uh, say, you know, I'm having this issue or I, I'm trying this thing or, you know, whatever. And it was totally inappropriate. But I was 13 years old just getting a complete worldview sexually for what is, what is the role of sex supposed to play in somebody's life. Fast forward to um, being in high school. Uh, I, I had a, a number of girlfriends. In every single relationship, it always turned sexual. It was never having sex, but it was always doing sexual things together until the re relationship essentially fell apart with incredible emotional damage done. As I become an adult uh, at 17, yeah, sorry, so sorry. Yep, this is happening. Yep. 
Uh, as I become an adult at 17, uh, the iPhone comes out. Accessibility to pornography is everywhere. Very, very easy. It went through the roof. And probably like every single person who is in this room right now, I was deeply formed by the twisted nurture of a sexually broken world. Deeply formed. My story is probably average. In fact, majority of the guys in the room have probably a very, very similar story at very similar ages. Uh, and it might even be on the more mild side, certainly today with kids like 13, 12, 11, 10 having iPhones in their you know, pockets at all times, just instant access to pornography. See, we're living as a culture in the wake of the win of the sexual revolution. The sexual revolution won. There was no like righteous you know, revival back against it. No, we are existing in the wake of the sexual revolution winning. So we have increased acceptance of sex outside of traditional heterosexual monogamous relationships. The normalization of contraception and the pill, uh, public nudity, pornography, premarital sex, homosexuality, alternative forms of sexuality, and the legalization of abortion were all aims that the sexual revolution had. From the 1920s to present day, this is what they were aiming for. And there are some direct implications for this from this today. So just some recent headlines of things that have been going on in our world. In 2018, there was a terrorist attack in Toronto in which a self-identified incel, you guys heard that term, incel, that's somebody who's involuntarily celibate, sought retribution against women and society for denying him the fornication he felt he deserved, and so out of rage, he ran people over in his van. At the beginning of the Me Too movement, Ashley Judd claimed that she was put in a professional predicament where since she wouldn't perform sexual acts for a senior, uh, Harvey Weinstein, her entire career failed. The New York Times recently reported that there's a curriculum in public high schools called The Truth About Pornography in which por it's a pornography literacy curriculum for students. Uh, that aims to make them savvier, more critical consumers of porn. The curriculum isn't designed to scare kids into believing that porn is addictive or that it could ruin their lives and relationships and warp their libidos, all of which are true. Instead, this is just amazing, it takes the approach that teaching kids to analyze porn's messages is far more effective because you know how many young men get very philosophical when witnessing naked women. Uh, not to mention how this sexual revolution has been supercharged with dating apps. Uh, I recently read a, a Vanity Fair article that followed a group of mid-20-year-olds, uh, girls and guys around. One guy, he said this about the dating app that he used. He said, with these dating apps, he says, you're always sort of prowling. You could talk to two or three girls at a bar and pick the best one, or you can swipe a couple hundred people a day. The sample size is so much larger it's setting up two or three Tinder dates a week, and chances are you're sleeping with all of them. You could rack up 100 girls you've slept with in a year. One gal interviewed, uh, she said this, if he texts you before midnight, he likes you as a person. If it's after midnight, it's just for your body. Now, this isn't to mention, even, uh, the many babies that have been aborted and the families that have been destroyed by the tearing at the, the you know, fabric of monogamy. So, so here's the question tonight. Here's the question tonight. I'm not here to just be like, oh, isn't the culture so bad? Okay, we all live in it. We get it. Here's the question tonight. Has it been liberating? Has the sexual revolution actually liberated? 
The revolution has won, but has it been good for humans? Now, what is so fascinating to me about this era that we're living in is that we look more and more culturally like the cities and churches of the New Testament. This is not a problem that the New Testament was, it was foreign to the New Testament and Christians are like pearl clutching, oh my gosh, what do we do? No. In fact, before us tonight, what we have in this passage is a tale of two theories. The Bible in conversation with a culture like ours. Uh, There are two theories before us in the Bible that we currently have about human nature and what is good for humans. And, And here is what Paul says. Look down at your Bibles, verse 18. He says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know? Your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Now, notice what he's condemning here. It's it's very specific. Paul is condemning sexual immorality. What is that? See, if I, had, if I had preached this back in the 90s, I would have been like, sexual immorality, it's sex outside of marriage. But we have, a, we have a culture that is constantly in the practice of redefining language in order to liberate ourselves from the, from the, the confines of traditional normative sexual behavior. So what is, what is sexual immorality? Well, thankfully, there's a Greek word behind it that is very well defined, and the Greek word is porneia. Some of you have heard that word, I'm sure, before. Uh, porneia is used in the New Testament and in the Greek translation of the Old Testament as a junk drawer term for, that, that describes the most extreme examples of sexual abuse to simply people having sex outside of the Adam and Eve Genesis chapter 2 paradigm. Simply put, Porneia is any and all sexual activity outside of a marriage covenant for life between a man and a woman. And so what Paul says is you should flee from it. Don't entertain it. Don't get close to it. You should flee from it. See, Paul is in this dialogue. You notice that I was saying, quote, end quote. Paul is in this dialogue with the Corinthians, and he's quoting back to them what they have said to him or what he has heard them say. And he's confronting their theory of human design with God's theory of human design in two different ways. Firstly, he's, he's confronting their ideas around the nature of freedom. So look down at your Bibles, verse 12. Here's the quote. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. Quote, I have the right to do anything, Here's what Paul says, but I will not be mastered by anything. What you have to understand is that there's a bunch of new Christians in this church, and they have this new level of freedom, and they're watching their Jewish friends who are becoming Christians get rid of the law, and they're going, this is a freedom place. There's no authority, no rules. This is incredible. We can be free to be whatever we want. It's like a first century hippie commune or something like that. And so they're thinking, maybe if we can throw out the law, all those, all those yucky Jewish laws, if we can throw those laws out, then also maybe we can throw design out and we can be free to express ourselves however our souls want to be expressed. Now, what they reveal in this way of thinking is that they have an anemic definition of freedom. But it's the same definition of freedom that we have today. Here's the definition of freedom. Freedom is the ability to do whatever I want. The more options I have, the more free I am. And Paul is like, no, 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 no. 
Real freedom is the ability to choose in line with design. That's real freedom. We're going to bring Tim Keller into this so, I can, so you'll actually believe me. Tim Keller once said, <laughs> he's like one of my heroes. Tim Keller once said, every single choice you make in life has the ability to open one door but shut every other door. So there really is no such thing as freedom when, when it's defined as doing whatever you want. Actually, freedom is a strategic loss of some freedoms for the sake of more important freedoms. That's what freedom is. It's a strategic loss of some freedoms for the sake of more important freedoms. Here's an example. Think of a man in his late 60s who goes to get you know, checked up by his doctor and they look at his cholesterol and they're like, dude, this is not good. And he's like, but I love bacon. And they're like, well, you need to stop eating bacon immediately or you've you're, you got like years left. Not decades, you've got years left. And he's like, huh, really? I do love bacon, but you know what he loves even more? He loves being with his grandkids. What is freedom for him? Freedom is making the choice to lose some freedoms, the love of bacon, so that he can emphasize more important freedoms, spending more time with his grandchildren. This is freedom. And so Paul is like, uh, your definition of freedom is all wrong. Freedom is the ability to choose in line with design. And don't be mistaken. Sexual sin has the ability to master you. It will make your choices for you. So flee from it. Secondly, he's addressing their dualism. Their dualism. What is dualism? What is dualism? Well, we have a great example here. So look down at your Bibles, verse 13. Here's the quote. You say, and here's what they were saying in their culture, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. This is dualism right in front of us. Sex? Oh, sex? Oh, that's just like eating. It's a simple appetite. It has no spiritual implications because there's a division between body and spirit. Your spirit is good. Your spirit's incredible. Your spirit's all that God cares about. He doesn't care about what you do with your body. That's the icky stuff. Now, this is a very ancient way of thinking about sex. In fact, we find it in the Proverbs. This is a fascinating passage. Uh, in Proverbs chapter 30, this is the way of an adulterous woman. Now, notice the metaphor. She eats and wipes her mouth and says... I've done nothing wrong. What is being said here? What is being said? When you don't see your body correctly, you can think that sex is like eating. It's simply appetite satisfaction. That's all that it is. But Paul says your theory of human nature is wrong. Your bodies are more than their appetites. They have a more spiritual and eternal purpose. Your bodies are not simply meat machines with hungers and thirsts. We're not dualists separating our body from soul. You're not just a body with a soul rattling around inside. No, you're an embodied soul. Think about that. A soul that put on flesh. <laughs> your mind, your will, and emotions, your soul cannot be separated from your physicality. It's why so often if you're sick or if something's going wrong with you physically, the emotions are affected. 
Even the, one of the, I, I tell my wife this all the time, but I don't actually mind being sick physically that much. Maybe I shouldn't mind. You're like, he needs more faith. Um, maybe I need more faith about that. But the thing that I really struggle with is I struggle with it, what it does to my mind. I begin, I don't think clearly when I'm sick. Oh, maybe I'm an embodied soul. <laughs> maybe actually it's all tied together. What, what does Paul say? He says, your bodies were meant for the Lord. Look down at your Bibles, verse 19. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. See, here's what I'm trying to get at. There is nothing physical that isn't spiritual. So the continual theme that I sense culturally throughout this series is that our culture believes that bodies are nothing. They're plastic. We can cut them, chop them, mold them into whatever we want. What really matters is your psychology. And it's subtly dualist. It's dualism in our culture today to believe that the mind is less changeable than the body. That's dualism. You've made a difference. They're actually, what if your mind, your will, and emotions, actually your, your physicality, what you've been given by God, actually meant something to that? And it leads a culture to believe that appetite is more important than biology or design. You weren't designed to have sex that way or with that person. You were designed to have sex this way. But we go, no, appetite is more important than design. The Bible has such a different view. Everything is spiritual. Our culture, our culture, says, culture says this, I'm not religious though, I'm spiritual. And the Bible says you're not spiritual enough. You're more spiritual than you know. <laughs> your body's a temple. You're not your own. See, you thought that you could make your dreams come true through the control of your sexual expression, but you're not your own. What if the best thing you could do with your body was return it to the designer who made it? You are not your own. This is what Paul says that you were meant for. So let me ask you this. Which theory is more sex positive. Think about it. Which story about human sexuality accounts for more data points about human nature? Are you just a body with appetites? Or could your very physicality be spiritual so that all your sexual activity is actually spiritual activity? Now, to get a little bit more practical, maybe you're wondering, what does this mean for me, though? What does this mean for me? So, firstly, for those of us in the room who are married, I want to speak to you for a moment. I think that we need to ask the question, and, and this is a really good question, what is sex for in marriage? What is it for in marriage? Well, Paul talks here about uniting, and he, he goes back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Sex is designed to become one flesh. It's to become one. You know, in some sense, the sexual act is like a taste of Eden, where, where two parts that were separated in the beginning rejoin in communion, where nakedness exists without shame. And for those of you who have a marriage like that, I mean, it's incredible. It's amazing. It's a gift. It's powerful. Paul actually says this in the next chapter uh, to married people. He says, now for the matters you wrote about. And here's another quote from them. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since, and, and, and listen to Paul's reasoning, it's very interesting, but since sexual immorality is occurring, 
Each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise, the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband in the same way. Now, this would have just, we're going to get to this next week when we talk about marriage. This would have shocked their cultural context. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other of sex, other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift and the other has that. This was so powerful for women in the first century. See, sexual fulfillment for women was a non-issue. It was a non-issue. Men actually expressed their masculinity through their sexual exploits, having mistresses, and women were uh, not to have any extramarital sex so that they would know this child belongs to this man. And Paul is like, no. No, men, stay home. Wives, your body, it's not your own. Husbands, your body is not your own. It's incredible. It's incredible. I love this passage because I grew up in this time um, in the church, and probably some of you remember this, where there was this swinging of the pendulum back away from sex is dirty, gross, icky, don't talk about it, don't do it, you know. We're swinging the pendulum from like the 80s back to sex is a good thing. It's a good thing. And there was this, this huge emphasis on, hey, we're sexual before we're sinful. That's true. Chronologically speaking throughout uh, Genesis, God invents sex, and at the first command to humans is have sex. He, inv- he, he invents it and, and commands it long before the fall takes place. But I think that there was an overemphasis on the importance of sex, and it actually made it so that married couples got a pass on idolizing sex. I talked to many friends of mine who are gay, and they're like, okay, so you're going to tell me that I have to be celibate for my entire life to live within the biblical framework of sexual purity. And yet every married couple I knows, I know idolizes sex with their partner and it's not being called out and it's not an issue. When in reality, Paul's instructions about sex are really clear. Married couples, you should have sex. Hopefully a lot of it. You should find out what your spouse enjoys and what pleases them, and you should not withhold it except for seasons of focus on the Lord. So what's primary? It sounds an awful, awfully similar to Jesus, using your sexuality for the sake of the kingdom. How do I serve you sexually? Every married person knows who's been married for more than a few years, or you've probably been married more than a year, you know that, that you don't always feel like having sex. And now as a single person, you can't even fathom that this would be a possibility. You're like, that can't be possible. The flame has gone out. Like, something's wrong with you. But every married person knows that at times, it's service. And what Paul is saying is serve well, as if you were serving the Lord. We'll get more to that next week as well. Now, for those of you who are single, dating, or engaged... This is going to be fun. Uh, 
What does this mean for you? What does this passage mean for you? Sometimes when we have sinned sexually, we get a view of sex with guilt glasses that we feel actually taints the goodness of sex. So I want to say to you, if you're single, if you're dating or you're engaged, make sure that you watch that your view of your body and its desires doesn't get moralized. To be attracted to somebody, to want to have sex with someone isn't bad at all. You were designed that way. You were designed to want sex. The invention of sex comes before the fall. But it is what you choose to do next. Does the act of sex belong in design? Or, as you're dating that person, are you pulling sex from a future season of your life into your present season when it doesn't belong there? There are really two issues that I want to address for single people that I have personally felt and personally worked, worked through. And that's how far can we go when we're dating? And what about masturbation? Like, when you're dating somebody, what exactly is sex? Like, pleasing each other with your hands or with your mouth, is that sex? Making out with somebody, is that sex? It's very interesting. Uh, I had lunch recently with Jacob and Andoni, and whenever we get together, it's just an absolute incredible time. And we, were, we spent the entire lunch uh, talking about, um, talking about a, a dating night that we're going to have soon, April 7th. For all of the young adults, we're going to do a whole thing on dating, and it's just going to be pure opinion, okay? There's like no Bible. There's like wisdom principles from the Bible, but it's basically going to just be what we think, okay? So we're not recording it. Nobody, like, you can come ready. You know, it's going to be... Jake and I are going to be doing an interview panel with, with couples and taking your questions. So please, just unload the best questions. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be amazing. But we we're, were having this conversation about um, this dating thing, and we were asking the question, well, when you were dating, what was sex to you? Every single one of us defined sex much more narrowly when we were dating than when we were married. Did you catch that? So when I was single and I was dating somebody, to me, sex was only like the real thing, like the thing that can produce children. Not making out or touching one another or oral sex. That was all kind of like ways to get kind of around that sexual immorality thing. But once I got married, I began to see that any physical act of connection like that is sex in my marriage because it produces in my marriage the intimacy that it was designed to produce. See, the problem, if you're dating and you are interacting sexually, the problem with sexual contact while dating is that you're attempting to pull the season of intimacy into the season that doesn't have the responsibility framework of marriage. It can't handle it. It wasn't designed to handle it. Let me just speak to this, to this real fast. When you are dating and you're having sex with your hands or your mouth or any other sort of genital stimulation, you are building a shaky foundation for your marriage to be built on. You are building a foundation of distrust and placing of the physical appetite before design and honor of your partner. Sexual contact outside of a marriage is impossible to get real intimacy from because you don't have the framework of covenant, and so it will always be a tryout. 
all sexual contact within a dating framework and not a marital framework that can handle it going poorly. Or actually, I didn't like it when you did this. Can you try this? It's no longer a tryout because I've made a baseline covenant with you that this is for life. But in a dating context, it's a tryout. And you feel it. Treating somebody like a commodity for sexual pleasure instead of, uh, instead of sex that asks, how do I serve you? How do I help you become the person that Jesus wants you to become? That's the difference. Now, what about masturbation? Yes, I just said it. What about masturbation? See, the problem is that the Bible doesn't say anything about masturbation. It says nothing about it. You're like, what about that one guy who, like, he was supposed to sleep with his brother's wife and he, like, spilled his semen on the ground? And it's like, yeah, that had to do with honor and caring for the line and having more children in that family. Completely different context. Not masturbation. The Bible says nothing about it. But almost as good as the Bible, I got a C.S. Lewis quote for you. Okay, so... (laughs) Okay. So I want you to imagine that you're friends with C.S. Lewis. And you go to a local pub, you've gotten real close, you're like, uh, you're like in the Chronicles of Nar- Narnia, it's a very strong series. You have completely simulated all my ideas about what heaven and hell could be, I appreciate it. But um, what about masturbation? Okay, here's his response to you, here's what he says. For me, The real evil of masturbation would be that it takes an appetite which, in lawful use, leads the individual out of himself to complete his own personality in that of another and turns it back, sending the man back into the prison of himself, there to keep a brothel of imaginary brides. And this brothel, once admitted, works against his ever getting out and really uniting with a real woman. For the brothel is always accessible, always subservient, calls for no sacrifice or adjustments, and can be endowed with erotic and psychological attractions which no real woman can rival. Among these shadowy brides, he's always adored, always the perfect lover. No demand is made on his unselfishness. No mortification is ever imposed on his vanity. In the end, they become merely the medium through which he increasingly adores himself. The main work of life is to come out of ourselves, out of the little dark prison we are all born in. Masturbation is to be avoided as all things are to be avoided which hinder this process. The danger is that of coming to love the prison. Doesn't that sound similar? I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. Sex is designed to unite. That's the design. So when your interaction with it is all for you, it actually locks you up in self-service rather than others' service, and it trains you to have sexual encounters that do not serve. You are training yourself to be a bad lover (laughs) so that one day when you are married, your litmus test of how good was the sex boils down to, did I get what I want? See, ultimately, both married and single people are invited to live in the kingdom culture of plenty and to allow that to even influence their sexuality. I want to go out on a limb tonight and say that all sexual immorality 
is a result of a lack of identity. All sexual immorality, I'll tell you what, in my life, it's been true. All sexual immorality in my life has been a result of a lack of identity. It isn't the man who is full off the love of God and identity as a son that night after night attempts a guilt-filled sleep after watching pornography. It isn't the woman who is full of identity and joy who seeks a fairy tale relationship on dating apps while giving herself sexually night after night. Look, we are designed, humans, part of our design is we are designed for union. And often we seek that ultimate union that we're designed for in people. But ultimately, we were designed to be united with God. That is what you're really longing for. All sex in marriage is at some point a letdown. Hate to break it to you. All sex in marriage at some point will be a letdown. And you will realize that you still long for and you need uniting, not with a man or with a woman, but with God. That's what you are really after. See, I have this very strong conviction. I mentioned this last week. This very strong conviction for this entire series. And and here it is. If Jesus is life, remember he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. If Jesus is life, then whatever Jesus had, I need to fully live. And whatever he didn't have, I don't need to fully live. Think about that. If Jesus is life, then whatever he had, I need to fully live. And whatever he didn't have, I don't actually need that to fully live live. What he had, he did not have sex. What he had was union with the Father. And yet many of us believe that God's design is too narrow sexually when we haven't even yet experienced what union with this Father could feel like. So tonight, for every one of us, whether you're married or single, this is a call to come home to him again and exchange shame for identity. See, maybe you're here tonight and you haven't treated sex the way that it was designed to be treated. What if you watch porn? What if you slept with someone you aren't married to? What if your whole relationship with your boyfriend or girlfriend has devolved into just sexual interaction, pleasing one another? What if you masturbate and you can't seem to stop and you want to be a good husband someday, you want to be a good wife someday, but but you're scared? What if? I believe that if God were standing in this room right now, he would say, grace to you. Think about just how kind Jesus was towards people who had sinned sexually. Remember the story of the woman who was literally caught in the act of having sex with somebody that she wasn't married to, thrown down at the feet of Jesus, likely naked. What does he say to her as people begin to drop their rocks and walk away? Neither do I condemn you. What kindness. See, every one of us has been touched in some way by the twisted nurture of a sexually broken world. And so I want to say to you, confess it. All of it. Sin is not just things that we commit. There's been sin that's been done to some of you that has caused you to think about sex in a twisted way or to act out sexually in a twisted way. There's been sin done by you that's compounded the problem and the worldview of what sex exists to be in your mind and your heart. There's been sin done around you. 
Just the nature of living in an oversexed and stimulated culture. Every turn, at every turn, whether it's online or in the mall or at a sporting event or driving your car, there's something sexually stimulating in the world that we currently live in. And so I want to say pastorally to you, confess it. Confess all of it as serpent stuff and align, our, and align yourselves with the kingdom of plenty. God, in you, I will find all that I need. The reason why sex is advertised is it's trying to tap into your lack of identity. It's trying to say, maybe this would fill it. God, in you, I will find all that I need. I want to give a little bit of an end to my story. I have not been personally healed of sexual temptation. That's incredible. I know a guy, a very important guy to this church. He's totally had no sexual temptation. He's, he's completely healed. It's incredible. That's not been my story. I am tempted constantly. But what I have begun to do is to confess it all to God. I confess to him when I'm tempted, God, this is what I would like to do. God, I could even see myself doing this. But what I will do, my confession, my declaration, what I will do is I will live in line with your design because of the son identity that you have given me, that you have promised that you will pour yourself out when I need you to. And so I ask that you would pour yourself out on me in this difficult moment of temptation right here. It's identity-based repentance. When we see the love and identity, the full union that God wants with us, our response must be to exchange the identity of shame, of the sexual sin for, that we've participated in or that's been done around us or done to us, for the identity as son or daughter. To stand in confidence that no matter what we have done or what has been done to us by the blood of Jesus, we are still the very home of God. Verse 19, do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. I want to pray for you. Would you stand? God, we just come before you as children, <laughs> as boys and girls who have been nurtured in many ways into um, not living according to design. But somehow, by your blood, you've made us completely pure, completely righteous, and so we confess that this evening. Maybe even just say that with me. Put your hand over your heart. God, thank you that you've made me completely pure. God, thank you that I'm completely righteous. I just want to say to you one more thing. I want to say, do not let your actions become more important spiritually in your life than his actions on the cross. When we take our sexual sin and we allow shame to, oh, to, to take us over from it, and we go, oh, but I did do that, and I did, do, and I, I bet, you know, this is a real thing for single people, I bet I'll never get married to somebody amazing because of the, God will never let that happen because of the sexual sin that I've participated in the past. It's a lie. 
His blood is speaking better things than the blood of Cain, the blood of Abel. So no matter where you've been, what you've participated in, what's been done to you or done around you, you are forgiven. Confess it, Lord. Here's what I've done. Here's what's been done to me. Here's what's been done around me. And he'll say, my child. Thanks for listening. If we can do anything to help you, or if you want to stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the App Store, or visit our website.